Good day to all of our investors and guests. This is the Rudd Commentary Podcast. My name is Josh Rudd, and I'm the managing partner here at Steer Wealth. With me today are our production team and Jack Herr from our investments team. Hey, Jack. Hi, Josh. How are you doing this morning? Doing well. For our new listeners who may not be familiar with who we are, at Steer Wealth, we manage investments for successful families, high-performing professionals, and organizations across the country, and become your wealth manager, confidant, and personal CFO. So you can relax and focus your time and energy on what's important to you. So Jack, on our last podcast, we described how wet it had been here in North Central Texas last month. But you know what? I leave all this rain in Texas and head to New York, and wouldn't you know it, more rain. Yeah, that's sometimes how it goes when you travel, isn't it? (laughs) It is. But Jack, you know what's worse than it raining cats and dogs in Texas? Oh no, what's worse? Hailing taxis in New York. (laughs) It's quite expensive too, isn't it? It is. So Jack, why don't you go ahead and take us into the trading room before we get off track too far? All right, we'll do. It was a pretty good... um, October in the market, wasn't it, Josh? It was. I think uh, the Dow was up quite a bit, wasn't it? Yeah. So we saw the overall market. Usually we measure that by the S&P 500 rally about 7 to 8% off its lows. And the biggest thing going on in the market was earnings. So we got to see a lot of our biggest companies report. They report on the economy, how they're doing, and their expectations heading into the holiday season and into 2023. It was a little bit of a mixed bag. Saw some positives. We saw some negatives. But My main two takeaways were first, consumer spending, seeing those numbers, and then second, business investment. So on the consumer side of things, we did see a decline in spending heading into the holiday season. Don't think that's a surprise to anybody. And a lot of this decline in spending was in those discretionary items. So maybe it's consumer products that they may not necessarily need or um, some technology that consumers have been spending on. For example, PC sales, personal computers were were down um, in Q3. And not all that surprising, again, heading into the holiday season. But Josh, what I'm really curious about is how we're going to do during the holiday season with you know, typically a lot more consumer spending then, but we did see some weakness for um, the consumer. Absolutely. I mean, the earnings release from Amazon really caught my attention, you know, that they got it significantly lower, but also the equity price reaction after those earnings were released was uh, substantial. Yeah. And of course, that, that's the big one, right? That the market pays attention to. That's Amazon's probably the best representation of our economy from a consumer's perspective. So all eyes on, on that company when they report. And um, especially in Q1, we'll be seeing how they do during the holidays. Um, second here is just business investment. Businesses started to cut back a little bit. Not a surprise um, as they see consumers decreasing their spending and just decrease investment overall, um, even if it was business to business, an expectation of a little bit of a weaker consumer. So a lot of our listeners probably asking, how the heck did the market rally 7 to 8%? And i uh, just like to remind everybody, something we've talked about on prior podcasts, that the market's a forward-looking mechanism. We've seen a lot of this bad news priced in, and a lot of the performance this year has been due to expectations that the um, consumer might slow down and the economy might slow down. That's certainly happening right now. But a good sign historically is when you start to get some of this bad news, the market reacting positively. So Josh, I don't want to steal too much of your thunder today. I know we're going to talk about how to identify um, some of these bear markets and the characteristics coming out of them, but definitely a good sign that we saw a positive reaction to some of this bad news in the market. Another thing I wanted to mention for our listeners was really the decoupling among all the three indexes, Jack. You mentioned the S&P 500 and the performance of the market for October was positive. In fact, I think it was uh, one of the better Octobers throughout history. But when you look at the Dow Jones Industrial Average, it was up significantly more than the S&P. And when you look at the NASDAQ, I, I believe the NASDAQ was actually negative for the month of October, believe it or not. So 
when you look at those three indexes, the growth companies and the companies that you were mentioning, multiple companies have typically been the leaders. You know, those were the fang stocks over the last several years. And you're seeing the rotation towards companies that are now focused on producing products and services that we use every day, products and services that we need. And you're seeing an exodus from companies that are producing products and services that are nice to have or fun or things that you enjoy while you're sitting on the couch. I think this is just something that investors should notice, pay attention to. I know it's something that's top of mind for us. Yeah, and I think it's a really good point, especially with those tech companies that, like you talked about, they're huge parts of our economy, right? But you got to look in all different sectors. For example, you mentioned Staples, but banks as well. They did really well with the higher interest rates. There's definitely sectors that outperform there. The second thing I wanted to talk about is bond yields. Josh, we actually uh, have a return, a yield on bonds now. So that means our investors can actually get interest on their <laughs> on their short-term savings. So isn't that nice? Yeah, it's nice. And the general benchmark the market uses for bond deals is the 10-year treasury rate. Um, we've seen that hover around 4% just over the last couple of weeks. It's actually closed yesterday a bit above 4%. And this is years after 1% to 2% or even some years um, where the economy was really good, people investing in stocks, and treasury rate was below 1%. Um, but with the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, you now have an opportunity here in bonds. And something that we've been able to take advantage of, Josh, in the trading room is we're starting to use this asset class again. So not only can our bond investors get much higher yield out 10 to 20 years, but we also have some short-term accounts that we're able to invest in one to two-year treasuries, get between a 4 and 5% return. And that's key right now, especially, you know, we talk about inflation, just about every podcast, how high that's been, um, to be able to provide some protection against inflation and actually grow an investor's money four or 5%, um, get that type of yield out 12 to 18 months. It's pretty attractive right now. And Jack, what's even more striking to me is that a lot of banks haven't raised their rates in their key savings accounts. So that gives investors a real opportunity to increase their income yield. You know, you don't have to go to Treasury Direct and, and search for that famous, now famous or infamous Series I savings bond that everybody's been talking about for the past several months. You really can just you know buy, as you mentioned, short-term Treasury bonds. And that's something that we've been providing for our clients recently as well. So I would encourage all of our investors who are listening, if you have excess cash that you have been reluctant to try to earn some interest off of because rates have been very low, please let us know. That's something that we can now help with, as Jack had mentioned. Yeah, exactly. So, Josh, that's all I had about the market in October. But besides that, any other takeaways that you had from October? No, Jack. Thanks for the update. No problem, Josh. So today, we're going to talk about some characteristics of bear markets as I previewed in my market update and some of the signs we're seeing now and just how we've identified market bottoms in the past. But I have some questions for you today. I'll probably try to sprinkle in some historical facts. I did a lot of research for this one, so I'm excited. But um, just any broad comments before we start about um, some characteristics of bear markets and, and how we identify those? No, uh, not specifically on bear markets quite yet. But what I will say is this, what I would call a bear market rally that has occurred in October has really surprised a lot of investors. I think that if we, when we start gaining momentum in one particular direction, investors think that it's going to continue indefinitely. You know, we we see kind of a snowball effect happen with bad news, and it begets more bad news. And then we look for bad news. That's kind of our nature, right? Right. And so 
Uh, a lot of us were really surprised to see the markets really turn and see the S&P, as you had mentioned, the markets were up you know, 8% plus in October. I think the Dow was up around 14%, which was just an incredible performance for the month of October. And so really, what was the trigger to that rebound, I, I believe, is top of mind. And a lot of investors that are on their own and that are managing investments online or you know, when they have spare time, may have reduced their allocation to stocks or may have, I hope not, it may have pulled out of the market altogether and, you know, missed that recovery. And as you and I have talked on this podcast several times, gains in the market are made up of surprisingly few days out of the year. And you typically see these these strong reversals and gains in the market. And so a lot of investors could be asking, you know, what the heck uh, changed? So a couple of points I want to make before you get started, Jack, is that I think the most obvious one is that we're down significantly off of the highs. You know, we saw these really high valuations at the end of the year in uh, 2021, and we're down significantly off of that. I mean, I know that's obvious, but I, I want everybody to put that into perspective, our listeners, because valuations have come down dramatically since then. So that's that's probably point number one. The second is you had mentioned earnings of a lot of tech companies, but there's also been a lot of companies that you and I have talked about that we've been surprised on the upside. Earnings have not been as bad as we anticipated. And I, I've seen that sentiment across the market in general. I've seen really strong companies uh, being able to pass along price increases. I've seen a lot of consumer demand, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I think there's still some cash left in bank accounts, and I still think we have some time to work through some of that cash for consumers. We're also approaching the holidays. There's a lot of variables that are at work here. But the point is, is earnings weren't quite as bad as analysts had anticipated. I do think there's going to be some deterioration in certain pockets. But the general consensus is that uh, we came in a little bit better than expected. Another thing that investors have brought to our attention and have really been asking questions about have been the fact that we're getting close to midterm elections. And we are also anticipating a change, and this is very common in a midterm election, where we can flip either the House or we can flip the Senate. There's a lot of changes going on, and those are some of the catalysts to the market rebound recently. Yeah, Josh, and one thing I'd like to add is you talked about high valuations in the market, right, and how those have to come down eventually. One thing I've noticed is just low valuations. We've seen in certain pockets of the economy, whether it be in healthcare or you know some of these biotech companies, some of these big cash-rich companies can go in and buy companies at, at lower valuations, and that's just one example. But um, I see that in a lot of different sectors of the economy, and a lot of times that can really help stock prices, both for the smaller company and the bigger company. Well, you're exactly right, and I'm glad you brought that up because you didn't say it, but I think you were implying also in the in the small cap area as well. We've seen a lot of companies that have been overlooked as we've been focusing on these FANG stocks, and they've gone into the stratosphere and been trading in a lot of these extremely high multiples at their peak. And there's been a lot of great companies that have been ignored for a long time, and whether that be entire uh, uh, sectors of the economy or in the case of small caps, just paying less attention to smaller companies versus uh, with a preference for larger ones and really just the FANG stocks in general. But I'm glad you brought that up. One other thing before we move on is outside of the United States, and we didn't get into the dollar, and, and that's a uh, conversation for a future episode, but we have a lot of international investments that are trading at just very compelling valuations that are outside the U.S., a lot of very high-quality companies. Uh, especially as we work through some of these geopolitical tensions, some companies that produce goods and services that consumers need every day. And 
there's also some attractive valuations uh, globally as well. Yeah, Josh, I know during earnings, that was a big takeaway is the strong dollar and how that was affecting both revenue and the bottom line. You see big companies, global companies saying that, you know, a strong dollar took six to seven percent just off their top line is pretty crazy to think about when you start thinking about how much money that actually is. So um, definitely a good point there. Moving forward a little bit, Josh, you mentioned the election coming up and how that could affect financial markets. You, you talked about gridlock and how that's usually a good thing. Do you have any other upcoming important events that could impact the financial market aside from the election? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I think the first one that investors need to confront and that we need to recognize is that interest rates are continuing to increase and for probably for the foreseeable future. So inflation is still very high and you and I have talked about that the Federal Reserve has the ability to raise rates right now, in, in my opinion, for one big reason, and that's that the unemployment rate is still very low. So basically, that low un- unemployment rate gives Powell the ability to raise rates without a lot of opposition. The second thing that is really tied to that, Jack, is the unemployment rate is something that, that we're watching very closely because that's an indicator of economic conditions worsening. And so right now, we're doing fine. The numbers that are being reported are very healthy. Uh, the unemployment rate is still at, at very low levels. But when that turns, and if businesses start to pull back on hiring or they actually start laying folks off, that's a little concerning for me. And I believe you'll also see wage pressures come down. Inflation will probably pull back. And as we look back through history, that could also, and I know this is probably difficult for investors to comprehend right now or to even think about, but that could also lead to some deflationary pressures, which has happened a lot in some of the major sell-offs market, uh, long bear markets throughout history. Another thing that I know is top of mind for investors is just the international conflict, and and not just in the Ukraine, but also in the Far East. I believe that Russia's uh, conflict with the Ukraine happened at a very, very difficult time for the financial markets. A lot of us are reading the papers, and we're seeing that there's some power issues now and with natural gas and power generation just across the Eurozone in general. I know that Germany's had a really tough time. I I read in an article a couple of weeks ago that they were now starting to burn wood for energy. Um, which is very telling. Um, So when you have all of those Eurozone countries so interconnected and dependent on a country like Russia for their power, uh, it creates some challenges in the world economy. And there's been such a lack of investment in energy here in the United States as well. We've had regulations dramatically increase. Capital expenditures by the major oil companies plummeted over the last several years. I mean, you and I were in the trading room together when the oil market cratered a few years ago and went negative. So we have seen a lack of investment. And so unfortunately, I believe we're setting up this perfect storm for this massive undersupply of of energy. And for an economy to grow and uh, over the short term, long term, it doesn't really matter. We need energy. Our industrial nation is based on harnessing energy and putting that energy to productive use. And whether it's the manufacture of automobiles or, or day-to-day consumables, it's absolutely critical. So I think that that risk is underappreciated in our country right now. And you and I have talked about that's why we continue to have an allocation to those large energy companies, because I believe that that need is, is definitely uh, still there. And I think we're going to continue to have a fortunately high demand and, and a short supply for some time to come. And Jack, the last thing that I think could impact the financial markets, and I don't, I'm not bringing this up, you know, in, in order to beat a dead horse here, but 
we still have these lingering concerns, not over so much the, the COVID-19 pandemic directly, but the lingering impacts of the response to that. I mean, a lot of folks here and investors here in the United States may not realize, but China is still in lockdowns and is still fighting this uh, from an economic perspective in a, in a very different way than we did here in the U.S. And so China was just such a, a driver of global economic growth for such a long time. And if uh, our listeners have been paying attention with the leadership in China, we know that Xi Jinping has now secured a third term in China. And from what I understand, has virtually given himself a life estate in that role. A lot of the opposition parties have been removed. And so it's it, China is really shifting and, and you're seeing some changes over there as a world power. And, and really, we're getting a little bit better view or a little bit more visibility into what their intentions are in the global arena. And and that also brings up some continued conflicts also with Taiwan and just some concerns I have there. I believe that uh, investors or our politicians and our elected leaders should be watching very closely. I know that's something that we're watching because we're globally minded here at Steer Wealth and we do have capital overseas. And so that's something that we're going to have our eye on. But the continued lingering effects of COVID, whether it's from our response economically, vaccine distribution, continued sickness, remote working, lockdowns. I just think it's been more pervasive and a more lingering effect than investors realize. Yeah, Josh, and one thing I thought of when you were answering there is you talk about our global view and our global investments, and it really is incredible how all these things impact each other. People may be here in, you know, China, you know, what does that have to do with us? And they don't realize that companies, some of our biggest companies like Apple, I mean, they have significant exposure over there. So, it's not only our response to the COVID policies, but also their response and, and how that affects us. And it's a pretty big effect. Jack, you're exactly right. We could have a full podcast episode on international investing like we did several years ago and go a lot deeper. And I really want investors to feel comfortable that you have a team here that is watching these global and geopolitical events very closely. And while a lot of them don't directly impact us here in the States, driving our cars to and from work, you implied that China carries a pretty big weight. And when you look at the issue with Taiwan, a lot of folks don't realize that, you know, our largest semiconductor company, with which is Taiwan Semi, they, they're in Taiwan. The relationship between China and Taiwan, while seeming to be very remote, directly impacts our clients in some way. And then you look at its impact on companies like Intel and, and AMD and Applied Materials and the others up and down the value chain, your point is, is spot on. We have to be globally minded in our efforts to invest our clients' long-term wealth. Agreed. Next, I want to talk about just the bottoming process in general and how long it typically lasts. You know, I want to preface this question saying that all bear markets are different right? You can definitely learn things from old bear markets, but at the end of the day, situations are different in the economy. History doesn't necessarily repeat itself, and that's what can make some of these periods so hard for investors is they get antsy, especially during these long ones. Uh, Josh, I think about COVID 2019 and how the bottoming process took less than three months, and a lot of investors they didn't even see um, those declines on their statement. By the time they got back their statement, may have had a little bit decline, and then their next statement after that, <laughs> that it, was was right. higher, it was higher than the previous highs. So Yeah, if you blinked, um, you missed it, right, Jack? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that, that period was very different in time, and I think that skews a lot of people's opinions on how this process looks and 
um, you know, maybe they expect, hey, wh- why haven't we bounced back yet? We've seen these declines. So, Josh, I'd just like you to give our investors some insights on how long these bottoming processes typically last. Well, thank you very much. And this is really important to me. I'm a student of history. and I love economic history and just studying how we as a people and a nation responded to these, not just bear markets and market corrections, but really just how it impacted our life and how it impacted the growth of this great nation and and how we came back better and, and stronger. And also really how it impacted economic policy, monetary, fiscal, all those things as well. So And you're exactly right. If we would have blinked, we would have missed the COVID sell-off there. But I think we really have to break this down in really two different perspectives and look at how investors with a long-term view would look at this bottoming process and then how investors with a short-term view uh, would look at this. And, And I think to put that into perspective, it's really important for our listeners to understand that the average holding period for equities in the last century was about 18 months. And when you think about that, it's very eye-opening because we all want to be long-term investors, right? But we look at the data, we're, we're generally not. We buy at the wrong times, we sell at the wrong times. It's a very frustrating existence. Also, you know, if, if anybody listening wants to go back, it's an interesting story. We don't have time for it. But, you know, the Fidelity Magellan Fund and Peter Lynch story, that was, you know, one of the best in investments in history. And its compound growth rate was incredible over a very long period. But very few investors actually realized that because nobody held it for the entire period. Right. You know, they'd sell at the wrong time and buy at the wrong time. And we, you and I talked about it. I mean, when things get rough, a lot of times the answer is sell and ask questions later. And so I want to start with that and say that if we just measure sell-offs until they recover, say, 10%, which I just mentioned to you that I think actually the Dow Jones has done more than that in, in October. So we could look at this recent sell-off if we just look at the Dow Jones and say, oh, you know, the bear market's over. I don't think that's the case here. But if we look at that, then it, it only lasted for about 10 months, which if I understand is about the average for those short-term sell-offs and then recovery of what I believe is 10% or more. But if we look at longer term, bear markets really take a lot longer from peak to trough to, to work themselves out. And there's actually been, I'm not going to go through each of them, but there's actually been five really large ones that I've I've researched beginning in the early 1900s all the way through the the tech crash. And to start out, I would say that bear markets typically occur every three years. I know you had mentioned that when we talked about it. I think you had mentioned the exact numbers, about 2.7. And they typically last, as you said, about 10 months before they have what I would consider a bear market rally of 10% or more. But when you look at a example, let's take the, the tech market crash tech bubble that started in March of 2000. You had several bear market rallies after March of 2000, which might lead you to believe that bear market was over. But if our investors, when you stop listening to this, if you go back and you look at those charts, that bear market didn't end until 2009. It took nine years for those valuations really to come down. Now, I want to make a very important point here. That doesn't mean that investors didn't make money and didn't participate in those bear market rallies over that nine-year period. But the point I'm trying to make is the valuations of investments were so high in March of 2000 uh, when we looked at companies like Cisco and, and some of the other technology companies. It took a long time for those valuations to come back down to a meaningful level where they started moving up on a long-term trend again. And it is something that investors, I don't believe, pay much attention to because we're so focused on that 18-month holding period. 
So, Jack, really what's changed is all these analysts are now having to reevaluate and recalculate the present value of all these earnings. Do you remember something called the cost of capital from TCU? Yeah, Josh, I think so. Uh, I think what you're saying is, so we have to evaluate these companies much differently now that they can't borrow money for free, basically, right? <laughs> the uh, humor you can hear in Jack's voice is something that we've been talking about in this office for some time, that the principles of finance are now becoming a lot more apparent. And we are actually having to go in and use a cost of capital to evaluate projects we can't borrow for free. So that's been one of the, I think, biggest changes that investors need to just confront that fact that the cost of doing business is going up. And it's not just going up for businesses, Jack. It's going up for everybody. We talked about that in the past. But just some things to consider. With that headwind that is now on the nose of this tremendously successful, fast, productive, and innovative aircraft of the United States, if we use that analogy, we have to make some changes. We have to be a lot more efficient, and we have to focus on new things. And that doesn't mean that investors can't make money and can't do well during this market. You and I talked earlier. There's incredible opportunities in healthcare and energy and productivity, too. I mean, we've been focused on innovation for a long time in this country, and innovation on par uh, products that I would argue really don't add a lot of value. Uh, my daughter brought one uh, to my attention the other day, just some new app where you flip your phone around and you do all this stuff. And I'm <laughs> thinking I, I'm still having a hard time figuring out how that adds to the economy, but the point is, is that we can help you find the investment opportunities in the market. That's what we do here. The Red Commentary is brought to you by Steerwealth. At Steerwealth, our sophisticated team becomes your proactive wealth manager, your confidant, and personal CFO. So relax and focus your time and energy on what's important to you. Contact us today at info at steer.com. That's info at S-T-Y-R-E dot com. I want to make this extremely clear. My example that I gave earlier that the bottoming process takes a lot longer than investors realize, and I believe we could be in one of those periods. I strongly believe that as interest rates adjust. But this does not mean that the stock market's going to go down for nine years. That's not what I'm saying. Valuations are consolidating. We're having to reevaluate how we measure success and what we look for in these companies. It's going to be focused on a lot more cash flow than it has in the past. And I'll give an example, that something tangible that investors can walk away with. In this office, we use investment policy statements to determine our projections for investor success, whether you're in retirement or whether you're coming up to retirement. For a family in retirement now, growth has always been a portion of that objective. But now the income component for a retiree, that means dividends and interest, Jack, is two-thirds to three-quarters of the total return that we're expecting from that investment portfolio. In the past, it hasn't been that high. And the reason I'm telling investors that is you need to look for investments that generate spendable cash flow on products that prices can be increased along with inflation. And we've been preaching that for the rooftops for the last couple of years with a specter of inflation over our shoulder. But now it's here and interest rates are going up. And Jack, the added benefit is you mentioned that investors can finally get a good return on their short-term emergency savings capital. So there are some silver linings here, and I believe we can get here. But I, I believe that historically investors should understand that bear markets can sometimes take a lot longer than 10 months. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a great point, Josh. You pointed at it there, but I'm excited about 4 or 5%. That's pretty good for me in my time in the market. I know you've probably seen some higher rates, but I echo everything you've said that a lot of that total return might come from those that investments, those incomes, and we'll see how that changes going forward. But I think we both expect inflation to remain a little higher now, those rates to remain a little higher now going forward. And just to put a bow on that before you move on, because I know you have a couple more questions, is the interesting thing when we go through these tough markets and we go through recessions and when we go through falling wages and things that we look around, we hear all these in the news, right? And they, we, we get up and maybe we don't feel so good about our retirement account, but we still get up, we still brush our teeth, we still use our toothpaste, we still use mouthwash. Hopefully we're all flossing our teeth, right? <laughs> we're putting gas in our car, we're eating breakfast. Some of us may skip Starbucks, but we're still going to work. We're still drinking coffee. We're still trying to go to the movies every once in a while. We're still having to buy clothes. We're still taking our kids to the zoo, Jack, and all these things take money. It is not that investment opportunities would be scarce. It's that we just need to change our perspective on which companies are going to disrupt, provide value, be productive, and innovate. And that's what we want to help our investors do as we move through this change in the economy. Yeah, Josh, and I, I brought it up earlier when we talked about earnings, is that these type of companies that can raise prices and have that pricing power, they've done really well in the market. They've outperformed the high growth companies, and those discretionary purchases have probably come down a little bit, and that's kind of led to the outperformance. Um, you, you said the Dow Jones versus an index like the NASDAQ, so I think it's a good point there. So, Josh, I think a lot of our investors are wondering – during this current sell-off is when are things going to change? When are we going to be ready for um, assets to resume their growth path? I know a lot of people are probably waiting for that Fed pivot. You talked about unemployment rate remaining low right now, so there's not much incentive for the Federal Reserve to go ahead and stop rate increases or even decrease rates. I think during 2019, when we saw the Federal Reserve simultaneously cut rates, right, and then the government stimulate the economy with some big spending bills, that was a real signal to the market that, okay, consumers can have more money in their their pocket, they're going to be able to borrow less, and assets are going to start to grow again. So um, I think a lot of investors probably now are wondering, are, are we at that point? When is that point going to come? What are your thoughts on that? Really good question. So the difference between now and 2019, as many of our investors know, is inflation is now what we're fighting. And the Fed has communicated that the transitory perspective that they've held over the last couple of years is just false. It's wrong. I mean, inflation's very sticky, and they're serious about fighting that inflation. At least that's what they've communicated. And I, and I believe that. I think it's absolutely necessary. Part of the reason I think it's necessary is there's such a large amount of government debt that's rolling off in the next five years. And I think it's, uh, and a lot of our uh, payments, our government payments are all indexed to inflation. We've heard from investors and clients about the COLA adjustment on Social Security and things. So there's a problem down the road if we don't really jump on this uh, pretty quickly and take this seriously. And I believe that the Fed knows that. It's not something that's talked about regularly, but that I'm convinced that they're aware of that. And that's part of uh, why this aggressive tightening is is taking place. So let's let me answer your questions directly. E equity valuations, Jack, need to come down to a more realistic level. And that may seem very obvious, but when you look historically, multiples, I mean, we're talking multiples in the 14 to 17 range, depending on what you look at and the types of companies. And I know we're still well above that. So 
those multiples need to come down, especially with those present value calculations changing now based on the cost of capital that you and I discussed. So that's number one. Equity valuations have got to come down to more reasonable levels, point number one. This, my second point is price stability. We talked about this in terms of inflation, but you can't plan as a business owner, whether it's hiring or input costs, you can't plan if you don't have stable prices. And we're not just talking about the price of copper, which, you know, as economists and and analysts, we all look at. We're talking about just uh, wages. We're talking about input costs. We're talking about how much is it going to cost to get an Uber from here to there. I mean, prices are not stable right now. We have comparatively low inflation to some of the stories we've read about, you know, after World War I in Germany or Zimbabwe or other instances of hyperinflation where you'll typically see commodities go through the roof. But we're battling with an inflation that's still impacting the the predictability of companies just to do business. I mean, you and I have talked about it, the day-to-day sodas and things, where do we price them? Movie tickets, you know, things every day. So price stability is point number two, because what that happens is you've got increasing product and and worker demands, predictable margins and inventory. Then what's going to happen is business investment, higher employment, and, and then the cycle continues. You see what I'm saying? I mean, we have price stability and all these wonderful things start to happen. So I think that that's absolutely critical. The last thing, and let's go back to the interest rate point, the real rate of interest needs to be positive. And that's a very basic, and and my students that are listening to this from my class at TCU, something that I want you to take away today is a real rate of interest to be positive. If inflation's running at 8%, interest rates probably need to go up to about 8 or 9% for things to be normal. And I want to make sure our listeners understand that. Interest rates are still a lot lower than the inflation rate. So capital still moving backwards. And for me, for us to reach some point of equilibrium in the economy, we've got to have positive real rates of interest. We talked about that in our undergrad, right? The risk-free rate and all those formulas that we did. It's, uh, it's something that I don't hear talked about enough these days from a very academic perspective and a theoretical perspective that we need to get back there. And the last thing, Jack, that I'll mention is that I'd I'd really like to see the waters of global tensions recede. The issue with Russia, in my opinion, it needs to be resolved with global support as quickly as possible. I think that could continue to get out of hand very quickly. And then I I think I had mentioned earlier on the podcast today that the issue with China and Taiwan, I believe that under the current policies we have right now in this country, that if we sit back and and we wait this out, I think China is going to become more, continue to get more aggressive towards Taiwan. That's not something that's good globally. And to your point about the Fed pivoting, definitely think that's a possibility. It's not something I, I would like to happen under pressure from bureaucrats. But unfortunately, we've seen that in the past, Jack. We've seen the Fed cave under pressure and pivot and change policy. But I believe that the inflation together with the low unemployment rate really gives them the license to do their job and continue to move forward with those increases. Yeah, Josh. And earlier, I talked about the market responding to bad news. Um, Yeah, I think until those interest rates come up and we get unemployment rate even higher, that may signal to the market that we're going to pivot now. It's one of those situations that sounds weird that bad news may become good news soon. And I agree with what you're saying. I don't see that in the immediate future going forward. Well, and on the point where bad news becomes good news in the pivot, I want to be very clear to our listeners that the environment of rising rates is very similar to taking medicine for poor policies in the past. It's something that needs to continue until we get a equilibrium in the markets, which for me, as I had mentioned, 
a positive real rate of interest is definitely an indicator of that uh, and price stability. All right, Josh, we've had a great conversation today. Um, We've covered a lot. I think we gave our listeners a great insight into some of the things we're looking at during these bear market sell-offs and how we look at a recovery. But the $1 million question um, still has yet to be answered by you, and that is, are we there yet? Jack, I'll be very direct. When we look at all the economic variables and everything in the market that we monitor, the this bottoming process has not run its course. And I want to make that very clear to investors. That doesn't mean there's not investment opportunities. That doesn't mean the stock market's not going to go up. What that means is I still believe prices are going to consolidate. I don't believe investors have fully taken into account the higher interest rate and rising interest rate environment. Uh, the geopolitical tensions and employment, there are other things that will go up and down from time to time that we see, and they'll, they'll fade, and then they'll come back. But this rising interest rate environment could be stuck with us for a longer period, and that's something that we need to prepare for. As Admiral Stockdale famously said, we need to confront the brutal facts, and then we need to make changes based on that. And I know that was paraphrasing a very great man, but we need to confront the brutal facts that interest rates are going up, and we need to make changes. So there is some good news in this. We can still do very well as investors in this type of an environment. We have investments that are no doubt going to innovate, going to blaze new trails of productivity. That's what America does. One of the things that makes America great. Another thing is the initial damage, not the, not the, not the headwinds, but the initial damage of the stark move in interest rates has happened. And it has moved long-term yields dramatically. And we saw that in a very short period, right, Jack, on on statements. So that's already happened. I'm not saying that bonds are not going to continue to be under pressure. They will, and we'll probably see some bond values fall. But we're now getting compensated for waiting a lot more than we were in the past. And investors can get interest. And it makes a lot of these periods a lot more palatable, which is why I mentioned earlier in this podcast that we're focused more on cash flow generating investments. So what's going to happen is interest and dividends are going to become a much larger portion of portfolio returns for the years to come. That's part of the reason you're seeing the Dow Jones Industrial Average now switch places with the FANG stocks and the S&P and just really outperform. Um, So even though the 40-year tailwind from falling rates has come to an end, there's still many opportunities for investments, and I want our listeners to realize that. In an era of higher inflation, it's absolutely critical to make sure assets are productive and that, Jack, also to make sure they're working as hard as you do or as you have in your entire life up to this point. The point I'm trying to make is even during these longer periods of falling equity markets, smart investors have historically been able to do very well by focusing on productive and innovative companies. And these are companies that create products and services that we use every day. And that's really what we do here at at Steerwell. These larger and more established, and yes, I know this is difficult for some of my students and maybe even you, Jack, to hear, but some of these older and dustier firms, some of these established firms, I think you're gonna see them come out with more innovative products. I think a lot of them are gonna lead innovation. And that's for one big reason, Jack, some of them are the only ones left that have cash and that self-finance. If you're think about this, if you're looking at buying a piece of real estate right now and you have to go to the bank, you're dealing with these really high mortgage rates. But if you have tons of cash sitting on your balance sheet, isn't it easier for you to take advantage of opportunity with all that cash when you don't have to borrow money? 
Yeah, Josh, you point to it. It's pretty incredible, some of these cash balances on, you know, these bigger, maybe dustier firms, I think, as you put it. It's huge cash balances. So I guess the point, and investors that are, those of our investors that are listening today, we are in a different world right now with rising rates. We do have a tremendous headwind that we're fighting against. And yes, as you pointed out, Jack, money is not free any longer. But there's huge opportunities out there if you can find the right markets. We've mentioned a few of those sectors today, and there are tremendous opportunities out there. Let us help you find those opportunities. And Jack, with that, uh, thanks for hanging out with me for such a long time today on this uh, podcast episode. And, and thanks for moderating these questions. I enjoyed all your questions, and this was a great topic. So thanks for helping out today. Yeah, this stuff excites me as well. So I was glad to do it, and I'm glad we could talk about these things. And thank you, all of our listeners, for taking time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode or learned something new, please take time to rate our podcast and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your preferred podcast platform and never miss an episode. Also, if you know other investors that would enjoy the show, please share the Rudd Commentary podcast through email or on social media. We also love feedback on our program and ideas for future topics. If you have the time, we do enjoy hearing from you. All of us here at Steer Wealth would like to thank you our investors and clients for your trust. Thank you for allowing us to be your partner in your long-term financial journey. We take this role very seriously. Thank you very much for listening today. This is the Rudd Commentary. I'm your host, Josh Rudd. And from all of us here at Steer Wealth, invest long and prosper. This commentary is distributed for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Nothing herein constitutes any offer to sell or solicitation of any offer to buy any security. All investment strategies and investments involve risk of loss, including the possible loss of principal invested, and nothing herein should be construed as a guarantee of any specific outcome or profit. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Any opinions expressed by employees of the Rudd Company are the Rudd Company's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of any affiliates. The opinions expressed by guest speakers are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Rudd Company or any affiliates. Guest appearances on this program does not imply the Rudd Company's endorsement of any entity, person, product, service, or investment. All opinions are current and only as of the date of recording and are subject to change without notice.